Well, welcome again, everybody. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and take them out. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20 today. If you're on your app, you can see it's about halfway through your New Testament, the book of Galatians. Chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and uh, we've got an usher or two. They'll be able to hand those out to you. Before I pray for our time in the Word today, I, I just want to follow up to what Sincer said just a moment ago. That video that we just watched of that church plant the park is doing in West Rogers Park, that's the real deal. I just want you guys to know what, I know those men very well. I know what they're doing in West Rogers Park. I know the type of uh, relationship capital they have up in West Rogers Park. They are loving Christ and doing church out of the box in a way that is very powerful to watch. Just as another pastor in the city who has a different model of church, but then looking in on them, I'm thinking when I see them and what they do, I'm thinking, man, how do we import some of that into this community? How do we get some of that culture that they have going on up there? It's, it's pretty remarkable and beautiful, and I love being able to share those stories. One, that, but two, also so that you know what you're a part of. That's your church. That's Park Community Church that you're a part of up there in West Rogers Park, and we can cheer them on from down here in the South Loop just as they cheer us on as they're up there doing what they do. So with that, let me pray for our time in the Word, and then we'll dig in. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. As we open your Word right now, we recognize the power of this. God, that you have spoken, you have communicated, and first and foremost, that means you desire relationship with us. You are not a God that is distant, you are a God that is intimate and near, and you've spoken and given us the ability to hear. And so God, right now, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would open up our ears that we may be able to hear you, that we may be able to understand what you're trying to say, and that we would leave here changed, let your word have authority over our life that we may become more like Christ. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Jesus told a story. It was a parable. Jesus was a very good storyteller. And, and this particular parable is one that has stuck from culture to culture. Oftentimes, this is the parable that has defined Christianity almost more than any other story that Jesus told. It's the parable of the prodigal son. In this story, there's a father who has two children. He's got a younger son and an older son. And the younger son is quite a party-throwing kind of guy. Uh, he knows how to live a life of debauchery. And one day, he goes up to his father. And his father's been a good father his whole life. But he says, hey, Dad, I want my inheritance right now. And you just understand right away, this is a child who has no sense of respect, no sense of authority. And the father says, if that's what you want, son... I'll give it to you. The son takes the inheritance and he goes off and the text tells us, Jesus' story tells us, he spent it on wild living. He threw parties. He in, in, got involved in debauchery and wild living and, and his whole life began to fall apart. He spent every cent of his father's inheritance while the father was still alive. One day a famine came over the land and the younger son had nothing to fall back on. He literally found himself, the son of a great father found himself homeless without a home and eating pig food. As the famine came over, he said, man, I'm, I'm going to die if I stay here. My only hope is if I go back to my father, maybe, maybe he will receive me. Maybe I can find a way back into his love. He goes back home and the story tells us that the father comes out of the home and sees the younger son from a distance. And he does what no one in that culture would have done. He sprints towards the younger son. 
This is unthinkable for a father in that day and age to sprint towards a son who's gone away like that, but he sprints towards him. He receives him with open arms, and in this prodigal son's story, what we see is a picture of the gospel, that no matter what we've done, no matter how broken we are, no matter how many times we've rebelled against the father, the father sprints towards us and receives us with the loving arms of a father. Many of us have heard that story before, but that's only half the story. There's a second brother, and the story of the prodigal son is not just about the younger brother, it's actually just as much about the older brother. The older brother had been working hard his whole life. He had been serving his father. He had day in, day out not been like the younger brother. He comes home from the fields after a long day of work, just as he had done every day because he was a good son. And he came in and he says, there's a party going on. He pulls a farmhand aside. He says, hey, what's the party going on? And the farmhand says, hey, your brother your brother's home. Your dad found him. He, he, he killed the fattened calf and he's throwing a party. He's giving him the best food. And the older brother, who had served as faithfully as he thought he could day in, day out, suddenly senses bitterness and jealousy dwelling up in his heart. My dad's throwing a party for my younger brother? I've served my dad every single day. Why is my, why is my brother? He, he's, he's the screw-up. Why is he getting a party? He says this line to the dad. He says, all these years I've served you, never disobeyed you, and you never threw a party for me. And yet now you throw a party for him? The story of the prodigal son is not just about the younger brother. It's about the older brother. In fact, the lesson we need to learn today is much more related to the older brother's position and what was going on in his heart. How had he become so callous and numb to the love of the father? How had he become so callous and numb that he could not celebrate the healthy return of his brother who was near death? What had happened to that man that he was incapable of showing just a little bit of happiness and joy around his brother? You see, the older brother represents for us today what we would call religion. He, he represents for us the religious life, this life of outwardly doing all the things we think we're supposed to do in order to appease or appeal to some higher authority, yet never dealing with the internal work of the heart. On the outside, keeping it together, doing what we're supposed to do, on the inside, rotting. The older brother represents the religious heart. We've been studying this book of Galatians as we're getting into Galatians chapter 4 today. And here's what Galatians is about. Hopefully you've picked this up by now. Galatians is a book on repeat. It just goes literally over and over. It's almost the same sermon every week if you've been hearing this. Galatians is about the gospel of grace. Paul is saying you can't earn God's love no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, you can't earn God's love. Jesus has earned it on your behalf and all you need to do is receive it. Receive it by faith. The moment you receive God's love by faith in Christ, God gives all of his love to you. It's a free gift. You can't earn it. And today we get to this breaking out of the, of the life of faith before Jesus. How do we balance this life of religion this thing we call Christianity. And the big idea I think of today's text is this. Religion can only ever modify your behavior. Only Jesus can modify your heart. Religion can modify your behavior, can make you look like you're doing the things you're supposed to do or make you think you're doing the things you're supposed to do, but only Jesus is actually able to transform your heart. 
Today, I want to work through that big idea, and I want to pull out three distinct concepts from the text that support that idea. The first one is this. Number one, Jesus modifies your motivation for loving God. He modifies your motivation for loving God, as opposed to how religion makes you think you should love God. Let me summarize this point this way. Every religion that you come across in this world will give you a set of rules of how you're supposed to love God. You travel to a certain city, you do enough prayers, you get on your knees enough times, you do enough fasts, you do something, and this is how you appeal to God, and this is how you garner God's favor. But Christianity never says this is all the things you should do to earn God's love. Rather, these are all the things that will come out of you once you've received God's love. You don't do them for God's love, you do them from God's love, and that's two completely different motivations. Let me show you in Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 8, verses 8 through 11. Paul says this, speaking to the Galatian church, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Let's pause right there. In verse 8, he says, Formerly you did not know God. He's telling a story, and it's such interesting language there when he says you did not know God. He's speaking to a group of people who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, and he's saying, before that moment, you did not know God. Now, that word know in the language of the Bible means so much more than when we use the word know in our day-to-day speech. The word know in the Bible has this concept of intimately knowing somebody, of knowing the the depths of them, of knowing their heart, of being familiar with all of them. And, And what's interesting is these people were highly religious people. Before they knew Jesus Christ, they were worshipers of some kind of gods in the Greco Roman world. These were people who were worshiping gods like Zeus and Athena, and Apollo, and Mars. These are the gods of the day. They were very religious people, and yet Paul says, when you were worshiping those false gods, you were actually worshiping things that by nature are not God. That's verse 9. What does he mean by that? Before you knew Jesus Christ, you were a very religious person, but you were actually worshiping things that in their nature were not God with a capital G. Elsewhere in Paul's writings, particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this may come up on the screen behind me, Paul says this in the same kind of line as that idea. He says, no, I imply that what pagans, that's those who don't know Jesus Christ, who are worshiping false gods, what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Now, where do we go with this? Here's what Paul's saying. There are some people who have come out of a very religious background. In our modern day, many people don't worship Zeus or Apollo or Athena or Mars anymore. You might go to some places in the world where that's happening. But there are plenty of folks who are coming out of very religious backgrounds. And the text says that when they were in those religious backgrounds, they were in slavery. And if you're in this room and you've come out of a religious background, perhaps you came out of Buddhism, you came out of Islam, you came out of Hinduism... 
and then you meet the freedom of Jesus Christ, you will be the first person to say, as I know those men in that video who will say this exact thing, the freedom and the escape from slavery that you have once you come into Christianity. Because there's no more pressure on you to try to appease God as in the other religions that give you instruction and descriptions of the life you must live. See, it's slavery to serve those gods because the moment you fall behind on your fasts, the moment you fall behind on your religious disciplines, you're out of love. Now you've got to work doubly hard to try to get back into favor with God. Now many of you didn't come out of a background like that. In our modern day, there's these other forms of religions. It's actually philosophy has essentially replaced the world of religion in America, in the West at least. I could go through a dozen different types of modern philosophies that are essentially our new religions. Here's one of them. The religion of self-authentication. You all know this one, you just didn't know you knew it. This is the religion in the modern day philosophy that says, you know, it doesn't matter what you think about God, doesn't matter what you do in life, all that matters is that you are the most authentic version of you. You've heard that, right? All that matters is that you are the most authentic version of you. Don't let anyone hinder you from being the real you. Just keep working for the real authentic you. That is what you will hear on every magazine cover in every movie that you see, the modern religion of self-authentication. Here's the problem with it. It's slavery. Because now you're, you're trapped in this relationship with yourself of trying to be the best you. And the moment you have a bad day, and the moment you let everyone else know that you're not as good as the outward appearance you want everyone to think, you're in slavery. You're five steps backwards and you're enslaved to trying to pursue the authentic version of you. You can't escape slavery. Whether you're coming out of a pagan religion, like what Paul's talking about, or a modern religion, both of them end up enslaving you, trying to get you to constantly pursue being the best you. And you keep finding yourself falling behind. Paul says, but... But, though that was your story, verse 9, but you know have a different story. But now you know the one true God who is by nature God. Let me make sure we pause there. When Paul says you know God, what does know mean? It doesn't just mean we have ascended to some intellectualism about who God is because we've read a book. It means that we know him intimately. Oh, this is the God this is the God who exists beyond the heavens. This is the God who is holy, just, fully loving. This is the God who said, let there be light. And before he could get the first syllable out of that first word, every atom that ever sprung into existence rotated around and sprung into the universe. That God you can know intimately. See, see that's, that's different this is a whole different ball game when you approach Christianity. We're talking about the thing that is by nature God, and you can know him. But then he says this in verse 9. Hear this word. Chapter 4, verse 9. He says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. That word, or rather, you could actually read that. It would be the same translation, just with a, a bit of a stronger emphasis, the way I think he meant it. Even greater. You've come to know God, but even greater, you've come to be known by God. See, in Christianity, what happens is that once you place your faith in Jesus Christ, God begins to know you and love you in a way that was not true of you before you were in the faith of Jesus Christ. 
See, in that moment, when you receive Jesus by faith, all of the love that the Father has towards the Son gets imputed to you. All of the righteousness that was Jesus's, that we have not earned, but he earned, he then imputes that righteousness to us. We then join him in who he is, and all of God's love that is for the Son gets shared among all those who are in the faith of Christ. God latches himself onto you and knows you. And here's what's important. That must become the sustaining force of your faith. If that verse, verse 9, is only that we now know God, we're all in a whole lot of trouble. Because that means if we have a really good day of knowing God, we can feel really good about ourselves. But if we have a really bad day or a really bad week or a really bad month, we're enslaved again. We've fallen 10 steps backwards. I haven't read my Bible in a month. What do I do? Oh no, I've fallen out of sync. Now I've got to work double as hard to try to get into it again. But the sentence doesn't end there. It said God knows you. And because God is a stable rock, his knowledge and love of you does not change from day to day. It is perfect. Therefore, our relationship with God is not an enslavement of trying to earn God's love. It's already fully there. God loves us fully no matter what we bring to the day on any given day, no matter how weak we feel we've been. See, what this does in the life of a follower of Christ is this removes our insecurities. Every single one of you, and me as well, we have seasons where we're very strong in our faith, where we're strong in our devotion. And if I were to ask you, how is your walk with Christ going? As I do when I meet with you one-on-one. And if you were to say, you know what, it's been a struggle the last month. Guess what? Good news. You're a Christian. Here's what that means. Though you've struggled over the last month, God hasn't. And he knows you and loves you. And there's no steps that have been taken out of that realm. All his love is being poured on you just as much as when you had a great season just a little bit before. See, it's not dependent on what we bring to the table. It's all dependent on what Christ brings to the table. This removes our insecurities feeling like we haven't done enough, feeling like, man, i, I got to do double today. Richard Lovelace, a theologian, a really strong thinker, thinks about it this way. He writes this great quote, talking about Christians who have forgotten this principle, forgotten this, and started to depend on themselves and their duty and their religion to try to get better. He says this, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus apart from their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously radically insecure persons, much less secure than non-Christians because of the constant bulletins they receive from their Christian environment about the holiness of God and the righteousness they're supposed to have. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness, and defensive criticism of others. They cling desperately to legal, pharisaical righteousness, but envy and je- they envy and jealousy over each other. Sin grows out of their fundamental insecurity. This is the older brother of the prodigal son. He's totally insecure. He's going about everything he could do to try to be a good person. He's being religious, and he's thinking that's what's earned him God's love. But on the inside, he's so insecure that he can't celebrate the return of his lost brother. God's love for us is not dependent on how well we read the Bible, on how often we come to church, on how many hours we pray, or how many times we help bring someone to faith in Christ. He knows us and loves us period, if we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ. And that's it. That removes all insecurity. 
Jesus Christ changes our motivation. We don't work and perform our religious love coming to church in order to achieve God's love, but rather from God's love. Number two, number two. Jesus modifies how you suffer. Now this is so important. We talk about suffering in this church all the time. And the reason we talk about it is for two reasons. One, it's on just about every page of Scripture. It's the most common theme in the entire Bible is suffering and how God meets us in our suffering and the solution that's offered to us in suffering, which is Jesus Christ. But the other reason we talk about suffering all the time is because it's the reality. It's not just the reality of the pages of Scripture. It's the reality of our lives. Life's hard. Every day. And just when you get through a hard season... You get into another hard season, and that will continue. There will always be challenges in us, and Scripture affords tons of material to help us understand how do we go through and navigate life in the suffering moments. Galatians chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Remember what we're talking about here. Religion can only modify your behavior. Jesus modifies your heart. Particularly, he modifies how you suffer. Verses 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Now, let me remind you what, what, why he's angry in this text. If you recall, Paul planted this church. He got this church going, and then he went, and he went and planted other churches. But while he was gone, some false teachers snuck in. And the false teachers were saying, hey, grace in, the grace of Jesus Christ is good, but you got to do a few more things to earn God's love. And Paul's over here going, whoa, have, have you forgotten everything I taught you? You can't earn God's love. It's all a gift of grace. Stop going through religious motions thinking that's making you right with God. Receive Jesus by faith. That's where the angry tone of this text comes from. Now, we learned some clues about Paul's early days in Galatia from this text. We learned that he had a bodily ailment, don't we? He says, when I first came to you, it was a trial. My bodily ailment was hard on you. Now, we don't know exactly what Paul's suffering was, but when he was apparently planting this church, he was suffering And in fact, the language he uses here, he says, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. In that day and age, they didn't have medication and bandages like we do. So if you had a particularly kind of nasty thing going on, it was kind of gross. It smelled bad. When we hear the word despise, that's what he's talking about. You didn't despise me in my suffering. You cared for me as I worked and labored among you. And we see two things that happened. Number one, here's how they loved him. They cared for him as if he was Jesus Christ. Did you catch that in the text? He says, you cared for me as if I was an angel of God, as if I was Christ Jesus himself. What a perspective is that? I want you to think for just a moment. Think of someone who's suffering in your life. Shouldn't be hard to do. Think of one person you know that is suffering right now, this morning. They're having a hard morning or a hard season. Can you say you've loved them as if they were Jesus Christ? See, see, this is actually straight out of 
others of Jesus' teachings. Don't you remember when Jesus said, he looked to the people who he's bringing into heaven, he said, you know, when I was uh, homeless, you gave me home. When I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was starving, you gave me food. When I was in jail, you visited me. And they all looked at Jesus and, and said, when did we do any of those things to you, Jesus? And in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, so you have done it to me. Who's suffering in your life right now? In the early days of this Galatian church, when grace was just rocking them, when they were like so in love with Jesus and they couldn't get enough of it, they were loving Paul and his suffering as if he was Christ himself. Number two, we see this. They desired to suffer in his place. He says, you would have gouged out your eyes for me if you could have. Now, now that is startling. I think the parents in this room maybe can understand that verse pretty well. Most parents I know would say, man, I would suffer for my child if I could. I would, I, would, I would give my eyes for my child if I could. There's a parental love that's understood there. But what's startling is that this is between Paul and other people in the church. He's looking around at the people in the church and saying, you would have suffered for her or for him, giving your eyes. That's the kind of love you had for each other. How does that love get into a congregation? It seems almost supernatural. It seems like this is almost impossible, and yet Paul's telling it as history. He's saying, this is what used to be true of you. Verse 15, Paul describes, and he uses this fascinating word, very important. Verse 15, what then has become of this blessedness of yours? That word blessedness, it means this joy, this spirit-filled enthusiasm, this overflowing of God in your life. He says, what's happened to the joy that you once had? Once again, we think of the older brother, don't we? This was the thing that the brother was missing. He had no joy in his life. He, he had all the, the motions. He looked good on the outside. Religion has, had put this mask on him that made it seem like everything was right, but there was no joy. And we see that in the moment when someone around him was suffering. He was just going on with his religious duty as if the whole world was fine. In fact, he was angry when the brother came back when he should have had joy he was concerned with being outwardly religious and there was no transformation of the heart. He didn't know how to suffer with his brother. Now, what's the problem with the older brother? I think it's the same problem many of us have. And it's one of the reasons that I think sometimes we struggle with deep, authentic, intimate community as a church. Not just in this church, in the Western church, but I'll, let's just call out our church for a moment. I think this is one of the reasons we struggle is because sometimes I think when we think of God, we think of him like a religious taskmaster. And so caring for the suffering among us becomes a burden that God's told us to do. And so our motivation for loving people is no different than every other religion that says you should care for people that are suffering. And we think of God as his taskmaster, and we think of this book as his rules, and we say, well, I'm supposed to do this, and you do it for a little bit, and then you get tired and God begins to seem like this begrudging guy who you just don't necessarily want to spend time with because he's going to tell you to do something you don't particularly want to do. And that's religion. I think sometimes that propagates its way throughout this community. And rather, what, what we see in Jesus Christ is that in Jesus, we understand that we were the first ones to suffer, and Jesus himself demonstrated exactly what he always calls us to do. He moved towards us in the middle of our suffering. 
When we were far from God, when we had no ability to come to God, when we had rebelled from God, literally when the text says we were in the mire, we were in the bog, we were walking through the valley of the shadow of death, even when we didn't know it and we were suffering, Jesus, who is God in the flesh, moves towards us. He begins to suffer in our place. He puts his body on a cross instead of us on the cross. He allows the wrath of God against the sin of society to come down on him instead of coming down on you. He didn't just desire to give his eyes for you. He gave his life for you. See, the difference here, the difference when we understand that God has first moved towards us in our suffering, that's unlike every other religion you will ever find. The difference is that changes your motivation. Now we're not honoring some taskmaster that we don't want to listen to. We're just paying forward what already has been done for us. You see, you see that? But it's only when you know that. See, if you don't believe somewhere in the depth of your core that you were broken and far and removed from God and that only Jesus Christ hanging on a cross in your place could ransom you from death and give you life in the full here and now and in eternity, if you don't really believe it was that bad, you're going to have a hard time loving anybody that's suffering. But if you understand what Christ has done for you, if you see one man hanging on a cross, not just enduring the pain of the crucifixion, but enduring all of the absence of the Father, literally stepping into the void where we belong because of our participation in the sin of society, if you see that God hanging in your place, oh, what happens is you get filled with this love that says, i got to love somebody the way I've been loved. I just want to pour this kind of love out in someone else's life. And then all the text of the scriptures become all of a sudden really clear. This is why God delights in us visiting those who are in prison. This is why God delights in us showing hospitality, not just to those that are like us, but to those that are hard. Like Paul says, you did not despise me, even when it would have been easy to do that. Can I just say this has been a defining mark of the church since its history. It's only recently we've abandoned this. Julian the Apostate, he was an early persecutor of the church, first, second century type time. He's trying to do away with Christians. He's trying to kill them, but he just can't contain them, and he writes this letter. He writes this letter to one of his guys. He's saying, man, no matter what we do, no matter how many of them I kill, no matter how many times I burn them, this religion just keeps growing. Listen to what he says. Why then do we not observe how Christianity has been helped on? especially by their philanthropy to strangers, by the care which they take in the burial of the dead, and by the sobriety of living which they feign. The impious Christians support our poor in addition to their own, that ours are seen to be in want of aid from us. Do not, therefore, let us allow others to outvie us in good deeds while we ourselves are disgraced by sloth. <laughs> Here, here's a Roman leader who's killing Christians, who's saying no matter how many times I kill them, they just keep taking care of our poor, so much so that we got nothing to do. I got no poor to take care of because the church keeps taking care of them even though I'm trying to kill them. What if that were true of us? You know, the loudest voice Christianity has in our modern day is one of politics. Most people who are not inside Christianity, it's hard to get a, gl a glance at like what people who are not kind of in this room right now think of Christianity, but most people when they think about Christianity, the first thing they think of in this country is all the things we're against and the political alliances we've formed over history. Blech. Christianity does not align itself with politics. Just so you know, Christianity is above that, right? He's not Republican, he's not Democrat. 
right? But, but, but when the loudest voice the world hears is politics and what we're against, <laughs> the type of growth the first, second century church had where it was changing culture and there was no poor in society because the Christians were taking care of everybody, that's not going to happen. We need to restore this. And this can't be something we say, well, now I've got a religious thing I'm supposed to do. No, 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 no. We look to the cross and we understand what actually happened there. We take care of those who are suffering around us because our motivation has changed. We're paying forward what's been done for us. We need to see the fullness of the distance that existed between us and God before we start caring for those that are suffering. Otherwise, God's going to very quickly become a taskmaster, which we can't stand to go near. Christianity changes the way we suffer well. Number three, Jesus modifies, this is the most important one, he modifies how you find approval. Every one of us is looking for approval. Every one of us, even if you think you're not a people pleaser, you are looking for approval. Jesus modifies how you find it. Verse 16 through 20. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? I love that in Paul. Wasn't afraid to just say it as it was, even though he knew he might make an enemy out of it. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. He's talking about these false teachers. They want to shut you out that you might make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, hear his heart and his language there. My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you right now and change my tone, for I am perplexed by you. Paul compares and he contrasts two teachers who are vying for the attention of the students, the Galatian church. On the one hand, they've got the false teachers, and he quickly shows us the motivation. Verse 17, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out. That means shut you out of the grace of Jesus Christ. They want to shut you out that you make, might make much of them. These false teachers, we've talked about this, they were called Judaizers. Remember, they were trying to add religion into this early Christianity. They were trying to say grace is good, but it's not enough. you got to follow some seasons, some practices, some religious duties if you really want to get the love of God. Paul says they're not doing it because they genuinely care about you. They're doing it because they want to increase the amount of followers they have. All they want is a group of people around them so they can puff up their ego and say, hey, look how many people follow me. He goes, watch out for those kind of teachers because they can't teach truth if they're blinded by ego. You can't get truth out of them. All you're going to get is the thing that you want to hear in order that their following might grow. We all know what this is like to be used, don't we? See, this, this, that's what the... The false teachers are doing, they're using the Galatian church. Everyone knows what it's like to be used. You ever had someone come up to your life and they're being nice to you? Maybe it was an old friend you haven't talked to in a long time that all of a sudden starts getting in touch with you. Maybe it was a family member who's being surprisingly nice to you. Then all of a sudden you're in a conversation with them one day and you go, you're just using me. That's what you wanted from me this whole time? There was no authenticity here. And all of a sudden, you just, don't you just feel used? You feel like an object in that moment. I know what that feels like. All of a sudden, you, you don't love me. All you want is that I follow you. All you want is that I buy your product. You weren't loving me. You were just networking me. 
Well, we know what it's like to be used. And Paul's saying, when you see teachers doing this, beware. Beware and flee. Because that person is about their pride, not about the truth. But here's what's more important. When we become that person, it dehumanizes us. It makes us the manipulator. See, when we drag this into the church and we think of people in terms of whether they will follow us and give us the pleasing, give us the satisfaction, the feeling that someone thinks we're worth it, when we are treating people that way, we end up using them and manipulating them instead of loving them. Once again, we go to the older brother. This is what he was doing. This is why he could not bring himself to love the little brother. You know why? Because he loved the fact that he had his life together and the brother didn't. It made him feel good about himself. That was kind of his gig. Man, I do my work. My dad loves me. My brother kind of, he's doing his thing. But hey, you know, look at me. I got it together. And the moment it was revealed that the father had just as much love for the younger brother as he did for the older brother, all his insecurities came out and he suddenly realized, man, I got this major heart issue going on. I am not satisfied in the love of the father. I'm satisfied in being better than my younger brother. See, we drag this into the church with us. Paul shows us a different way. Paul says, my little children, I'm in the pain of childbirth. To all the mothers in the room, you said, I don't know if he knows what that feels like because that's a lot of pain, right? That's a lot of pain, but that's what Paul is trying to say right here. This is the type of agony my soul has over you. And I don't care whether you love me right now or hate me right now. I'm going to tell you the truth because my top priority is that Christ is formed in you. You can hate me all you want, but as long as you recognize Jesus on the cross, then I'm happy. That's all I want for you, says Paul. I want you to elevate Christ in your life so that he takes over every moment of your life that you don't get distracted with religion. You don't get distracted with false philosophy that tells you that just be the most authentic version of yourself. It's a lie and it enslaves you. I want Christ to be formed in you, says Paul. That's all I want. That's a total different motivation. This can only come from a relationship with Jesus Christ. See, once you get the love of God that totally satisfies you, then you're filled up on the love of God and you can pour out into other people. Any other type of love is just using them because you're trying to satisfy the hole in your heart. See, every one of us has a need to be fully loved. It's in there. There's a void. Talk to anybody on the street. Ask what their philosophy on life is. And if you keep getting down to it, you keep asking the right questions, everybody wants to be loved. And if we don't find that love in the eternal love of God, if we don't fully satisfy ourselves in the reality of that God who didn't just spin the world into motion but then hung on a cross on your behalf, that's how much he loves you. If you don't find that love in him, if you're not fully satisfied in that, then there's this void that still lives there. And when I talk to you, I'm just trying to fill that void. Man, I hope this person makes me feel satisfied about myself. But if it's full... If I see Jesus Christ hanging on a cross, shedding his blood for my sin in my place to give his love to me so that all the love the Father has for the Son might be imputed to me and I would become adopted into his family, the King of Kings is my Father. 
See, if that love is real, not just words on a page, but actually is in your heart and you live that, now guess what? You've got love to pour out in other people and it doesn't matter if you like me or not at this point because I'm gonna tell you the truth and if you hate me, that's fine because I just want one thing. I want Christ to be formed in you. You see the difference there? One teacher wants to fill up their ego. The other one wants Christ to be formed in them and it all has to do with how we see Jesus on the cross. Some of us have brought this into our life of Christianity. And we're using people. We're using our spouses. We're using our friends. We're using our neighbors. We're using the people that we do work with. And we haven't thought about it that way, but we are. And it comes through in all these little ways, these thoughts we have, these nagging insecurities that pop up and we wonder, man, did I say the right thing today? Did I offend them in the wrong way? Someone said so-and-so about me. I caught them talking about me behind my back and then I can't stop thinking about it for weeks on end. All these things, this reveals that our love is not being fully satisfied by the Father, but rather we're trying to fill that love by broken people. We need the cross. A person who has met that need by the love that's offered to them on the cross now is not dependent on others to give them that love. They're able to freely pour it out on others. This is exactly what Christ meant when he said in John chapter 4, verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Have you received that living water? Is that true of you this morning? Is, 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 is the living water bubbling up in you? Have you? Do you have that blessedness that Paul describes in this chapter? That joy of pouring out into other people? Is that true of you right now? If it's not, literally, the way you receive that is to receive it by faith. You place your faith. It's not something you can do. It's something you believe in. And what happens when you trust in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, is that all of God's love gets given to you and the spirit gets placed inside of you and he totally transforms your life. Where religion can only ever modify your behavior, Jesus can modify your heart. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the scriptures that have revealed your love to us. And God, literally right now, all we do is just say thank you. Thank you that you freed us from slavery. Thank you that you've given us freedom. Now, God, let us live into that freedom. Let us not ever return again to slavery. We pray this in Jesus' holy name.